Hello, everyone. Today, our topic is OFDMA capacity estimation, pre-equalization, and 5G ingress and more. Your questions, our answers. I'm Brady Volpe, founder of NimbleThis and the Volpe Firm. This is episode 86 of Get Your Tech on our show on all things DOCSIS. With us today, back again, is John Downey, senior CMTS technical leader at Cisco Systems. John, how you doing? I'm doing well. What episode are we on? This is episode 86. Ooh, wow. We're getting up there in, in numbers and in years, John. <laughs> so, John, you know, it's been a while since we've introduced ourselves. Um, where are you broadcasting from? Tell us what you've been up to and, and how things are going. It has been a while, hasn't it? Uh, I'm, uh, you know, ever since COVID, mostly working out of my house. I am about 40 miles west of Raleigh Dorm. And uh, Cisco has a 12-building campus in RTP, Research Triangle Park, which is Raleigh-Durham area. Uh, I've been down. I just celebrated my 22nd anniversary with Cisco. So I've been here for a while. Um, and uh, weather is nice down here. I used to be from Pennsylvania, but uh, the weather is nicer down here. Yeah. So, well, speaking of anniversaries, we're just coming up on our 10th anniversary with Nimble This and our, I think, our, uh, our 12th anniversary with the Volp Firm. Um, and with me, you know, so I, I always introduce you and myself, John, and I, I always fail to introduce our executive producer, Mia Colibris, who's always behind the scenes, sets up these shows and, and run, runs these shows. So um, Mia sits just over here to my right and, and makes sure that all this goes off. So a big thanks to Mia for making, um, you know, just helping making all this happen and getting the information out to everyone. Myself, she even, I've, I've I been. She even she even sent me. I think the uh, the Logitech camera from my, my <laughs> system, right? Yeah. yeah. You guys wanted to make sure I looked half decent. Well, you, it's, it, we don't have a lot to work with, John. So <laughs> <laughs> I need better filters. I need more filters. On this we gotta, we gotta, we've got to do that for both of us. Yeah. Uh, who, who wants high def? Let's go back to standard def. I know. And, and YouTube keeps pushing. Like, hey, you got to do 4K now. And I was like, I don't. We don't need 4K. We need low def. <laughs> So, um, so yeah, I mean, myself, I'm uh, also from Pennsylvania. You know, both John and I met at C-Core about like 30 years ago. Um, yeah. So we started at C-Core and uh, have, have slowly moved around. Myself, too. Now we're in Atlanta. Um, Pennsylvania is a great state, but Atlanta is you know, nice and warm. So <laughs> yeah. kind of like that, especially in the wintertime. And I didn't meet either of you at C-Core. <laughs> <laughs> well, we all work together at C-Core, or at least, you know, we, we spent time at C-Core. <laughs> I think I started in 94, so it's going to be 30 years. I just thought about that. Yep. It's got like 29 years, I think. I started in 93, so. Yeah, oh, there you go. Yep. All at that 30-year mark. Um, yeah, so today's topic, you know, we were going to talk originally about <laughs> impaired and partial mode channels. Um, that didn't work out due to some technical reasons, so today we're doing customer questions. So we get we get a ton of customer questions that come into us and I, and I or not customer uh, listener questions. Uh, actually some of them are customer questions. So I thank all of you who send all of your questions into us. And I apologize that we don't get to them all the time, but um, you know, it's just a matter of time. Today is that day. We're going to get to some questions. As I said, we've got um, we got a number of them queued up here and we're just going to hop right into them. Our first question that we have coming in comes from David, and, and this is about calculating OFDMA um, capacity. So David, I, I kind of broke these down um, in your answer, is your question, very long question, but um, talk about, you, know, you say your upstream is a five to 42 megahertz, you kind of put in parentheses 40, so I wasn't sure if you had 40 megahertz diplex filters, but you said we're using four ATDMA channels one 3.2 megahertz wide and six six point four and three six point four megahertz wide, all of them at sixty four qualm. One and then you have one 10 megahertz wide OFDMA channel, and you go on to say that you figure the four qualm channels uh, you're estimating are going to be about ninety four point two two megabits per second net. We'll go ahead and confirm that. And then you're looking at how to calculate megabits per second on the OFDMA channel. Uh, can you send me in the right direction, please? So that, that's your question. 
this is uh, this is interesting because calculating capacity on the OFDMA channel can be quite tricky because there's so many variables on that. Um, you know what what's the modulation? What's the bandwidth? How many subcarriers are in there? A lot of variables on that. Um, John, I I know you've we were talking before this. You have like a spreadsheet that you go into on this. Yeah. So one of my colleagues, Jason Miller, he put together a really extensive spreadsheet calling out all the different the variables and uh, selectorized fields. And and uh, we ran some of the numbers. And we know the smaller the channel is, the least efficient it is. Um, bigger channels are more efficient, so you get more speed. Uh, smaller subcarriers are more efficient because the overhead is less, because you have a certain amount of pilot carriers and, and things of that nature, and cyclic prefix and all the FEC overhead and uh, the LDPCs, all that stuff. Uh, with the more granular subcarriers, you get more efficiency. So we don't know, is he doing 50 kilohertz, which most people started with 50 kilohertz because that was default, or is he doing 25 kilohertz subcarrier spacing? Um, there's some limitations there as well. With 50 kilohertz, the smallest channel you can do is 10 megahertz plus a half megahertz on both sides. So it's really 11 megahertz of spectrum. Right. So I want to take a, back, a step back and say, well, what about spectrum allocation? Where where are you putting all this? You know, if you do a 3.2 versus a 6.4, yes, it will be 3 dB higher on a spectrum analyzer versus 6.4. So it's a good place to put on the low end, right? Maybe you put that down like 12 megahertz or somewhere crazy down there. But if you put it at the low end, what's going to happen to the modulation that that's going to support? So I was just talking about the single carrier qualm. Oh, the qualms, so okay. Let's keep the single carrier qualm down <laughs> there. Then we do the other three 6.4s side by side. Yeah. And then you do the 10 megahertz of OFDMA from say 30 to 40. I'm hesitant to say to go to 42, just like you pointed out. 40 megahertz dot flex filter system. Yeah. Most systems are probably 40. And even if they are claimed to be 42, there's going to be roll off. So you could do 32 to 42. Actually, it'd have to be uh, 30 to 41 or 31 to 42. Because you you want to keep it away from that diplex filter, that roll off region that you're talking about. You're just asking for trouble. And if you have a 5 amp cascade, there's two diplex filters in every amplifier. So now you got 10 diplex motors you got to deal with. So now that um, the subscribers at the end of that cascade, they're they're going to have degraded performance, maybe even modems that go into partial mode, which we'll cover in a later mode, episode. Or, or they're going to drop down to IUC 13, which is the default IUC for OFDMA, right. and that might be 16 qualm or 64 qualm. So you're running those customers at lower modulation, and any traffic they need to do will pick the OFDMA first, before it bleeds into the single carrier qualm for cross-bonding. And if they're running 64 qualm, they're going to take up more many slots of time versus people that are running 1K qualm that are more efficient. Correct. I mean, the whole goal is to use OFDMA to its highest capacity if you can. Mm-hmm. And, right. and I, I, want to, I just want to jump back because you mentioned the cyclic prefix. And, and the cyclic pe- prefix is something that we don't talk about very often, but it is a knob in the CMTS that you can tune to make the OFDMA channel more or less robust to some types of impairments that you're going to have. But the trade-off, and, and you were, as you were running the numbers in your spreadsheet before we went live, is... It wasn't much with the 10 megahertz wide carrier. It might have been uh, the difference of 72 versus 78 megabits per second. But that's still six that megabits it. per second. It's not trivial. Yeah. <laughs> but, but as you go higher and higher, as your bandwidth increases, then that cyclic prefix, which, again, we're tuning the cyclic prefix to make that OFDMA channel more robust. Cyclic and, prefix is like you're adding overhead. It's like saying, hey, I'm going to send you this many bytes, and I'm going to add a little bit of overhead at the beginning, a prefix, to try to guarantee what's coming through is correct and do like a parity check and all this other stuff. So if I put more of that in there and more and more and more, it's more overhead. Right. So, so the question is, how much is is good? How much is bad? Jason even mentioned he found the cyclic prefix when I had when, on the downstream uh, when he had low MER because of maybe uh, adjacent carriers were causing a little bit of bleed over or something or maybe roll off. The, the, and I call it cyclic prefix, cyclic, cyclic, whatever it is. Tomato, tomato. Uh, tomato, tomato. <laughs> <laughs> uh, when he increased the cyclic prefix, he was able to keep a higher modulation. So there's kind of a trade-off, right? 
If I keep a higher modulation with a little bit more overhead, that was actually better than less overhead and lower modulation. Right. Does that make sense? Absolutely. There's a, there's a fine line there. Yeah, so but now on we... The upstream, on the upstream, he didn't find as much benefit as he did on the downstream in that same situation. Right. Which was kind of interesting. And I think because on the upstream, it's bursty. There's multiple things happening on the upstream. Keep in mind that when we schedule, at least Cisco, we schedule left to right in spectrum on the OFDMA. So if they did happen to go from, from 30 to 42 and the customer never used the whole block, it would always schedule from 30, from mini slot zero, up until you needed uh, up to 42. You understand what I'm saying? Yep. It's not like the whole thing pops up and down. You actually see on the spectrum ally that kind of fill from the left. Right. Yeah, and we see that all the time, which, you know, to keep in mind then, if you are running the OFDMA channel in the lower portion of the spectrum where there's noise, you have to keep that in mind because that yeah. noisy spectrum is where you're going to start populating the data first. So we kind of talked about uh, all these variables that I mentioned in the beginning. If we, if we look at the answer to our question, I have, I have a slide here. So we, now we go back to um, David's original um, concept where he said, well, I, you know, I, I think I'm going to get about 94 megabits per second for the SC qualms. And we can see that here where um, each 3.2 megahertz channel at 64 qualm, that'll give us about 13.4 megabits per second. He has one of those. And then he has uh, each 6.4 megahertz channel at 64 qualm, that'll give us about 26.9 megabits per second. These are the net numbers. These are not the gross, so I've, I've eliminated the overhead. This is actually the net traffic that'll be able to... Uh, I call it usable. That's yeah, usable, usable traffic by the subscriber. Yeah. Um, yeah. So if we take uh, a three of those 6.4, that gives us an aggregate of 80.7 megabits per second for the 6.4 um, megahertz channels. So just looking at the SC QAM, uh, 13.4 plus the 80.7, that gives us right around uh, 94 point, uh, what is it, 94.2 megabits yeah. per second. So I think uh, he was spot on with his estimates for the SC QAM. So awesome job for that, David. Um, now we get down to the OFDMH channel. And what I what I did here, um, John, is I I I, I kind of use this as my reference, which is um, Karthik Sund Sunderson. He works for Cable Labs, and he's a super sharp guy. I really like Karthik. He wrote a paper um, back in 2017 for Cable Tech SCT Expo called Accurately Estimating D3.1 or DOCSIS 3.1 Channel Capacity. I'd recommend everyone, you know, go ahead and Google this paper, download it. Uh, it's freely available on the internet. And he goes into really great detail on all the different variables that go into how you can estimate different OFDMA and also OFDM channel capacity. He has a Python algorithm that he uses to do this capacity estimation, and he kind of he uses code blocks to show how he does his different estimations. Also, if you are a Cable Labs member company, you can go to the Cable Labs repository, and there's a couple of different. Uh, you can get Karthik's Python model there. You can also get Alberto Campos's. Uh, he has a very very detailed Excel spreadsheet that allows you to very accurately model the OFDM and OFDMA capacity. Uh, so, you know, exactly what you'd want to do here, if you want to know, you know to the very bit uh, for a 10 megahertz channel or for any other channel, what that capacity is. Um, however, those, you know, they're very detailed worksheets. They give you very precise examples. What what I tend to do is I, I like to just take Karthik's estimation here. Granted, this is this is based on a 1024 qualm. So your OFDMA channel has to be running a 1024 qualm for these estimates. And then you can just go down here and I'll look, you know, that's about in, in the bottom right hand uh, corner here. I know that's 10 megabits or 10 megahertz channel at the very bottom. That gives you 100 megabits per second. So I'm, I just did a very rough estimate. And uh, if, I, if you look at the very bottom of the slide here, you can see the total capacity is that original 13.4 megabits per second for the 3.2 S megahertz SC qualm, 80.7 megabits per second for those three 
6.4 megahertz SC qualm and roughly roughly, it's a very rough estimate, 100 megabits per second for the 10 megahertz OFDMA channel. So that was my kind of rough assessment, which gave you a total capacity of 194.1 megabits per second. Again, that's assuming the OFDMA channel is 1024 qualm with no impairments. Now, John, I know you ran this through your Excel spreadsheet, and I think you came up with a little different answer than me. For the OFDMA channel. Oh no, John, I think you're uh, you're on mute there. Yeah, got it. <laughs> so I I ran through with a 96 uh, cyclic prefix, uh, 25 kilohertz subcarrier spacing, 11 megahertz total spectrum, which is 10 megahertz of active subcarriers, uh, and it ended up with 1k qualm, 1024 qualm. It ended up be about uh, 82 or so, um, somewhere around somewhere in that range. So I mean. Rounding up to eight one hundred might be aggressive or <laughs> hopeful, um, yeah. but I mean, if we say it's going to be anywhere between seventy and eighty megahertz per second, it's a good number. I think the key here is in a forty-two megahertz plant, you could offer a one hundred megabit service if you do this. Yes. If you do OFDMA cross bonded with some single carrier qualms, because you're not going to have nearly enough capacity with single carrier qualms. Um, and you can't just afford to do all OFDMA because you probably still need single-carrier qualms for BOIP and DOCSIS 2.0 and DOCSIS 3.0 modems. So, like, I'm, I'm curious why they're doing the 3.2 megahertz wide channel. Uh, and maybe it's just because they have more VoIP or DSG, DOCSIS set-out gateways, uh, or something that needs a smaller channel or just a little bit more capacity for 2.0 or 3.0. Yeah, or maybe that 3.2 megahertz channel is the one that is in the lower frequency spectrum where they have more noise. Um, though all of them being at 64 qualm, uh, I wonder how they do that. And then the final thing, John, you know, to get that high capacity, we have to remind our viewers that has to be a 1024 qualm. So we've already got some questions coming in and, and queued up. Uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah, I know. John, how is this? Going. Can you hear me now? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, th I think it's the quality of the audio. It's not the quantity, John. <laughs> <laughs> quality is that the same as volume? <laughs> no, <laughs> doesn't make it. Um, so Local Trees, glad to have you back again. Uh, Greg, Craig Van Ham, good to, good to hear from you. Uh, gl glad you're here with us. Um, so, uh, yeah, I'll get your headset there. So, um, Brandon, my struggle is as much the capacity of OFDMA. I personally still have trouble wrapping your head around the, the 1.6 megahertz reference compared to the 3.2 and 6 megahertz reference. So we did an episode um, a couple of months back on that. And actually, I think we did a couple of those. And, and so maybe we have to revisit that one, one more time. Um, and so, Brandon, I don't know if you caught those episodes we did on on the uh, powering, how you know, basically how we measure power of the OFDMA channel. If not, please do catch that. If not, let us know if we just didn't cover it well enough, and we'll do another how one. About in, how about in a nutshell? DOCSIS 3.1 in the spec says that we must report the modem's transmit level based on 1.6. It was kind of an oversight with single carrier qualm and DOCSIS 2.0 and 3.0. It should have been like this from the very beginning. And they recognize that there's a gray area of levels and reporting of different vendors and different modems. And, but we have a certain reference level, then there's no question. We know what the reference level is. Uh, and they said with 3.1, we want all the modems to report the transmit level based on 1.6 megahertz. That way, everything's apples to apples. Regardless but, of how wide the channel is, regardless of whether it's a 3.2 yeah. megahertz, a 6.4, a 10 megahertz caused, wide OFDMA, yeah. or 190 or 96 megahertz wide OFDMA. But it's caused a lot of heartache and headache because you could take a 3.0 modem that says it's transmitting 50, you put a 3.1 modem in there in the same location, now it's saying it's transmitting 44. Yes. But that 44 is based on 1.6. If you could fit four 1.6s in a 6.4, 10 times a lot of four is 6 dB. So add 6 dB to 44, you get right back to 50 again. So it's the same thing, it's semantics, I guess. <laughs> it's what you're referenced to. The old 3.0 modems were referenced to the channel with itself, 6.4. But now if you put a 3.1 modem in there, it's going to say it's 44 because it's 60 below. So you have to have your own correction factor or you need commands on the CMTS to say, all right, what is it referenced back to the channel with? 
For Cisco, we do a show cable modem phi norm for normalized, and it'll tell you the power level for the channel. And, and I, I think that's an important statement that you made, John, and, and maybe that'll, that'll help, um, help with the, the answer to the question is, prior to DOCSIS 3.1, we, we've always referenced channels to a certain bandwidth. We were referencing to 6.4 megahertz before. We just weren't saying, hey, this, this channel power is referenced to a 6.4 megahertz bandwidth. Now sure. what we're doing is we're saying all modems are referenced to a 1.6 megahertz bandwidth. So don't don't get like don't get a um I guess don't struggle to understand that there there is a change. What we've done is we've just normalized everything. We said now all modems have to be referenced to a certain reference. And what is that reference? That reference is now 1.6 megahertz. In the past, we've had references those references have just not been standardized. Like they may have been one 6.4 megahertz, they may have been 3.2 megahertz, different vendors had different references. Now with DOCSIS 3.1, we're saying, hey, everyone has the same reference and that reference is 1.6 megahertz. Yeah. But the, the problem is they're used to seeing a histogram or a bell curve of modem transmit levels that it turn into a bell and then they put three one modems in it and everything shifts down now. Yes, <laughs> because we're reporting 60 B lower because it's based on 1.6. So then you're like, oh, my God, all the modes are transmitting low. No, they're really the same as what they were. It's just they're now they're all them. transmitting and reporting correctly to the same exactly. reference. Yeah. So it can be. And to make matters worse, you know, we we changed the modem reporting because the spec said so. But let me throw a monkey wrench in here. What about the CMTS? What happens when you leave it at zero dBmV? That's a default receiver. What does zero dBmV mean? Reference to what? Yeah, well, for the relative. longest time, it was reference to channel width. <laughs> yes. Um, so we had a customer that was always looking at their modem transmit levels, the CMTS configured level, and saying, all right, if I transmit 50 and I hit here at zero, there's 50 dB of loss between A and B. But that zero wasn't really zero, if you know what I'm saying. Yep. That zero was referenced for channel width also. So now we we had to write a bug or a, a DDTS, we call it, or a feature request to say, all right, what does zero mean in this case? Well, it's a 6.4 channel. If you're reporting based on 1.6, that zero really should be minus six at the CMTS. Correct. And then if I do a show cable mode and norm, it should show zero and the transmit level based on channel width. Absolutely. I'm trying to keep it's, apples to apples. Yeah, it's, it's again, it's, I, I think it's just don't get hung up on it. It's, uh, it, it's going <laughs> to make things more standard and more, more normal for everyone from a reporting standpoint. Um, so another question we have on here from uh, Jeremiah, how many IUCs should you use if 9.5 to 26.5 megahertz of OFDMA, two, three, four, or more, is less better than more. And I, I think you're, uh, when you're saying IUCs, this, these are profiles, like how many different profiles should you apply to the modem? And uh, when we're talking about profiles, just as a, a refresher to anyone who may not understand, in an OFDMA channel, uh, so when I, when I was saying like we're assuming 1024, that gives you the maximum capacity, in an OFDMA channel, we can provide different modulations to the, to the cable modem, and the cable modem can operate on, on whatever modulation it can support. Um, so for example, we can send 1024 QAM in an OFDMA profile, 512 QAM, 256 QAM, and, and even lower modulations. And if there are impairments in a plant, uh, if there are no impairments in a plant, the cable modem can operate a 1024 QAM. We can give the highest amount of capacity to that modem. As impairments come into the plant or if the modem's seeing impairments, then that modem may drop to a lower order modulation like 512 QAM or 256 QAM. So these are what we're talking about from that standpoint. So I think the question then is, is, is it better to have just one profile? Like let's say we just put 256 QAM in or do we have multiple profiles? So, um, John, you have, oh, oh, there's that, hit that subscribe button and that like <laughs> bell if you've not done that already. We just love it when you do that. I, I don't have a touch screen. Yeah. I don't <laughs> <my screen>, <laughs> do it anyhow, John. <laughs> so, John, you know what? So, do you have any uh, thoughts on that? Is more uh, of course, or less? Yeah, everything. of course, you have opinions <laughs> on everything. <laughs> so, the IUC is the interval uses code, and we used to call them mod profiles. Uh, and we always had like, uh, 
uh, IUC 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6. One was a bandwidth request. Two was a data request, which we never used. Three is station initial maintenance. Four is station maintenance. Five is a short grant, and six was a long grant. That was DOCSIS 1011. When DOCSIS 2.0 came along, we came out with advanced UGS, advanced long, advanced short. So we had a, an IUC um, 9, 10, 11. 11 was eight advanced UGS, specifically for voice calls. Then with 3.1, we came out with IUCs 13 and 12 also. So it turns out these IUCs are like mod profiles. 13 is what the modem uses to lock on from the very beginning. Once I get MER reading, 13 is the one for OFDMA. 13 is the, the registration yeah. one for OFDMA. Yeah, we're, not, we're just talking about upstream, right? We're not yeah. talking about downstream. Correct. So upstream. So 13 is what you want to make it really robust because that's what the modem's going to drop down to or start out with. So that might be 64 qualm. If you can't run 64 qualm, something's wrong with your plan, <laughs> yeah. right? I mean, you should be running 64 qualm with single carrier qualm. You better be able to run it with the OFDMA. So some people are really nasty because they're trying to run below 15 megahertz. So they, their IUC 13 might be 16 qualm. Which so makes sense. If, if you're trying yeah. to run it in the noise, yeah, that, yeah. you're going to have to use so, it really So let's say IUC 13 is 64 qualm. And then you say, all right, well, IUC 12 will be 256. IUC 11 will be 512. IUC 10 will be 1K. IUC 9 will be uh, 2K. 4K is a little reach, right? But if you were doing remote 5 plus one amplifier, you probably could get 4K qualm to work. Uh, the modem support it, but you got to make sure your firmware and the CMTS and the RPD support it. And the that's, modem should support it. And it's not so, so CMTS vendors, per the DOCSIS specification, are not required to support modulations above 1024 qualm. I, I, don't, I don't know about that. I, well, it's a should. Yeah, yeah, it's not a must. Yeah. So they, they should support it, but they, they are not required. It's yeah. not a must. Yeah, I think the cable modems had to have the hardware the, to support it. The cable it. modems oh, must okay. support it, but the, yeah, yeah. the CMTS must, is a should. So I know with Cisco CMTS, we now support 2K QAM officially on an RPD. Uh, I don't know that we support 4K QAM yet. Um, and what's funny, if you look at the spec really closely, it recommends that when you go 2K or 4K QAM on the upstream, that you should change the CMTS input level to like plus 10. I'm like, who has that much range <laughs> to put a plus 10 at the CMTS to make the motor run 10 dB hotter? I'm like, that ain't going to happen. So we've tested ourselves. We had no problem keeping it zero um, and then let the OFDMA run the same level of as a 6.4. Like when you look at a spectrum analyzer, the OFDMA, regardless of channel width, should appear the same reference level as a 6.4. Right. So, um, so back to that. The um, where are we going with this? I, I the, think I think we covered that. I, th I think we're ready for the next question now. <laughs> <laughs> move, move on to the next one. Move on now. Um, so our next question up here comes from Dash, and and this goes into a training. So we know you know we have so many new people coming into the industry. And one thing we know about the industry is there's not a lot of training. So Dash says, hello, my name is Dash. I, I work for an ISP as a field technician and I absolutely love my job. But the training has left me with a ton of questions. I love your videos, but I'm looking for some material to explain me the in-depth details of what is downstream and upstream. What do they do? How is the data injected into radio waves? Where does the head end get its signals? Questions like this are driving me insane. I understand how to do my job and how to find and fix issues, but I'm still left with tons of questions. I hope I've not been too broad with my questions, but I honestly have no idea how to even ask the questions besides how does it all work from the head end to a customer's modem? So <laughs> I think, um, I think this is something that is in, in an industry issue that we have because, you know, there's not college courses. And we, we talked about this before on the cable industry. Um, there's not even, you know, there's nothing even in high school that you can take um, to learn about the cable industry. And as the cable industry, we are getting more and more complex in what we do. Just if we think about some of the things that we've talked about just in this episode and in previous episodes, about, I mean, we're talking about OFDMA and modulation profiles. We've not even talked about things like, you know, what is a decibel? <laughs> and 
and, and we're expecting people coming into this industry to understand that. And I think where this goes back to is training, training, training. So one of the, I mean, one of the best things that I can recommend to people to start is um, the SCTE. So www.sctee.org/education is. If you have the, the ability to go here, um, either through your company or through your own means, they have great education for, you know, just kind of the questions that were the Dash was asking here, just the fundamentals and the basics. Once you start, once you have these fundamentals and basics, because I, I, I know Dash was saying, like, he understands how to do his job. But there are some fundamentals and basics that once you get those under your belt, they they can help you do your job so much more so much more effectively and efficiently. Um, so I kind of put on the right hand side, and this comes out of one of my blog sites at um, voltfirm.com. Uh, we have a Doxis 101 tutorial, and I I put a link down there, um, and also a Bitly link at Bitly underscore qualm or Bitly slash qualm underscore mod. There's a link to that that takes you there. Um, so Dash, you can take a look at this, but you know, because you're like, how does RF, how do the bits get put onto the RF signal? And and this kind of shows you what that is. Um, so, you know, every signal can be discussed or described by the equation that I have up there. And then the bits are put onto this is an AQAM representation. Um, I kind of wanted to put that up there, Dash, uh, if you're if you're watching this video, but to, to get to the point to understand this, there's so many basics that you have to understand, and that, that's kind of what I'd recommend either, you know, if you can, go to SCTE or just look at all the other articles that I have on volpfirm.com and Adoxus 101 to sort of build up to that point. But there's a lot of learning to get there to do that. John, I don't know if you have any other recommendations for Dash and other people that may be in his position. Yeah, I mean, you know, you mentioned there was no real courses wasn't the CTE or Cable Labs in conjunction with Rochester University or something like that at one time? Um, and I thought they were offering some type of courses on on just RF in general. Uh, I'm not sure where that went. I thought it was Rock, Rochester School of Technology or something. I, like I think they had something Maybe involved Jack that Black time. School of Rock. Yeah. <laughs> 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 it might have been that, but uh, yeah, I don't know where it went from there. Um, but I, I don't know. I, I would still go to SCTE and see what they have. And I think there may have been another organization out there that was doing some training. But I, Ron Hrannick. Google Ron Hrannick. Yeah, Ron has, has so, much, so much good content out there. Also, Broadband Library has a lot of good content out there now that we've been contributing to that over the years. Yeah. Um, but it is really incumbent to, to put on it. We're also going to I mean, be doing even, a series with Ron. Oh yeah, um, starting in the new year, we're going to be starting a series with Ron. Um, just starting it. We're, I think the first episode is going to be what is a decibel. Um, so that, but but it's not available yet. <laughs> start yeah. start that in the new year. Yeah, so we're going to start promoting that. Yeah, I always said you could do a back to basics that would continuously run, and even people that have been in the industry for 20, 30 years. To hear it again and hear it from someone else with a different little twist or analogy, uh, it'll go a long way. You know, I tell people, you know, we, we talk about digital and QAM. QAM stands for quadrature amplitude modulation. Quad means four. So you have four different phase shifts that can occur. But if you just did phase shifting and no amplitude modulation, that would be QPSK, quadrature phase shift keying. So we are manipulating an analog signal in phase and amplitude to represent digital data. Correct. If you want to go real digital data, it would be lights on and off, on and off, on and off. One zero, one zero. We don't do that. And, well, we're we do it with RPDs. <laughs> we yes, do it when we send it from the C to an RPD yep. or a remote five. Correct. It's but, but originally, and it was the cheapest, easiest way to get a digital Ethernet type of signal to a cable modem into your house was over this analog cable plant. And that's what we're doing. Is we're, that's what Doxus is all about, right? Yeah. We're manipulating an analog signal in phase and amplitude, uh, and then trying to relay digital information on this analog signal. Correct. You know, yeah. if we didn't, and even modem stands for modulator demodulator. That's what modem stands for. Bit stands for binary digit. You know, there's there's all kinds of like little words we use. Is that what bit stands for? I actually didn't know that. <laughs> See, I, even did I, a, I learned something today on I this live stream. That's awesome. Yeah. 
<laughs> and uh, I did a, a paper on understanding digital years ago when I think it was at Secor, uh, or maybe I was at WaveTech. Uh, either way, it, that's a I go back to that once in a while. I'm like, oh, yeah, back to basics is actually a good thing, you know. Cool. Very cool. See, we're all learning stuff today. This is good. <laughs> <laughs> and even like a bite. I thought this one was funny. I, I love these. Uh, did you know? Like, uh, fun fact for you. <laughs> the, uh, the the bite. You know, a, a bite. Eight bits in uh, a bite. Most people say eight, but technically, it could be more bytes or bits in a bite. So, to be specific about eight, you would say it's an octet. Mm-hmm. So, an octet byte is eight bits. So what do you call half of that? Four a nibble. Bits. Exactly. So a nibble. <laughs> it's kind of a play on words, right? Instead of a full bite, you I take have a, a nibble. nibble, just a bit, <laughs> just an, a little bit of a nibble. And I thought it was kind of funny. It's like uh, even like uh, the, the 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 names that people give. Remember Twain drivers? Twain. Twain. I only know like, Mark Twain. It's like a driver for like fact, like uh, the small Donald modems and stuff was a Twain driver. Twain stood for. Technology without an interesting name. <laughs> <laughs> I thought that was hilarious, but yeah. it's true. It's like, it's, it's, facts are stranger than fiction sometimes. Can't make this stuff up, man. Right. <laughs> no. <laughs> On to our next question. Uh, comes from Danny. Danny says, what are TAP coefficients? And I, it's, so for me, I love this because I do so much P&M training um, from the, the nimble this side of my business. So, um, and this is not uh, my uh, P&M application. This comes from someone else's P&M application. I have no idea who, but um, so it's, it's good to see this. We need to do more P&M training as an in- industry. So um, let's jump into this. So, you know, pre-equalizer coefficients is something that comes from the cable modem. These pre-equalizer coefficients are in the cable modem to compensate for upstream impairments so that the CMTS community, you know, the CMTS is constantly monitoring um, all the signals coming from the cable modem. And as it sees that there are impairments coming from the cable modem, the CMTS will communicate back to the cable modem and there are, there's an a built-in pre-equalizer in that cable modem. It's a 24-tap pre-equalizer in DOCSIS 2.0 cable modems and higher. Um, DOCSIS 3.1, we'll talk about that later, but this 24-tap pre-equalizer is, is what we were seeing in that previous slide. Um, and this, this pre-equalizer will be controlled by the CMTS, and it, it's basically going to adjust the output of the cable modem so it, it pre-distorts that output to compensate for any type of impairments so that when that signal from the cable modem arrives at the CMTS, it's basically going to compensate for, for those types of impairments. And that, um, that's, that's really what the, the CMTS is trying to do is make it so um, signals arriving at the CMTS are nice and flat on the top. <coughs> And what we're seeing here is um, on the left-hand side of the screen, we're seeing the CM pre-equalizer digital taps. So these are those 24 taps that I was saying that are built into the cable modem, controlled by the CMTS, and they're being adjusted for some impairment between the cable modem and the CMTS. On the right-hand side of the screen, what I'm showing is something we call in-channel frequency response. And that's basically zooming in on the output of the cable modem. Um, so, you know, we talk about that cable modem haystack. We talked about it in, that, in previous episodes. But if we zoom in on the very top of the output of the cable modem, like kind of what it's transmitting, we see that's a non-flat response. It kind of looks like a, uh, a sloped response. So when that signal arrives at the CMTS, it's going to be flat. We're compensating for some, tor- some type of impairment. Um, that's basically what we're talking about on, you know, what are tap coefficients? These are, the left-hand side of this slide are the 24 tap coefficients in the cable modem controlled by the CMTS. John, any? I like like to to say like digital sampling points. If you have a 24 tap equalizer, you have 24 sampling points, which means you have finer granularity of that single carrier qualm, 6.4 megahertz, 24 of them are pretty tight. You know, mm-hmm. you can get a good representation of in-channel frequency response when you have more sampling points. 
Uh, so it's not just in-channel frequency response and roll-off, but it's group delay also. So CMTS wants to see a flat signal. That's an amplitude thing. But it also wants to see signals properly timed. So if I have a certain signal that comes like two milliseconds later or, or two nanoseconds later, that's the same signal I just got, something's wrong. So it's probably a micro-reflection. So I need to figure out how to get rid of that thing. So the CMTS is in charge. It's the brains of the whole system. The CMTS is going to tell the modem during the next station maintenance period, hey, your levels are off. Maybe your, your regular levels are off, but also your signal is distorted this way. So I need you to pre-distort the other way. So you hit me flat. Right. Um, so the CMTS will do that during station maintenance. It'll, it'll update its MER readings. It'll update the modus transfer levels. It'll update the pre-equalization. Um, so that happens every station maintenance period. Uh, the one pitfall to that, the one gotcha, and I tell people this so they understand, is a T4 multiplier. I keep bringing this up. Because <laughs> yes. once you start bonding and doing multiple channels in a bonding group, so if a modem is doing four-channel upstream bonding, the T4 multiplier is a 4X. So if I typically do station maintenance say, every 15 seconds, Four times 15 is 60 seconds. So it could be, you could have a slight impairment at the house right after I had a station maintenance, but it could be 60 seconds before you get an update. There's a delay. Yep. So. so it's just understanding, I guess, like a technician goes out to fix something. It might not fix right away because it's still waiting to get the next station maintenance to say, hey, now you look good and I'll change the level. So you might have to wait a minute or so. Right. So, so I mentioned that these, um, these pre-equalizer taps, these 24 pre-equalizer taps were on DOCSIS 2.0 and 3.0 modems. And I said, but not on DOCSIS 3.1 modems, right? So DOCSIS 3.1, on DOCSIS 3.1, we still have the 24 taps. If the DOCSIS 3.1 modem is using SCQAM, our, you know, our traditional legacy SCQAM right. channels. Correct. However, if it's using OFDMA, in an OFDMA channel, as you mentioned, we're using subcarriers that are either have a 25 or 50 kilohertz spacing. Um, so these subcarriers really change that whole thing. And, and we'll talk about that in just a moment. Um, let's look at our, our questions we have in here. So um, we're have 2.5 minutes up behind. So there's always a delay in this, but the, the Twain thing got me. I, I love that too. Um, so hello, Brent. Thanks for joining us. Um, and uh, so most of my service orders seem to say TAP9 out of spec. Why is that? So TAP9, um, that's a good thing. So we didn't talk about the actual TAPs. If we go back to the slide really quick, actually on, on this particular slide here, so there's different TAPs on here. The TAP that is elevated the highest, that's TAP number eight. We call that the main TAP. Um, the main TAP, if there were no impairments in the plant, in, in the plant, um, all of the RF energy would be going through tap number eight and all the other taps would be completely suppressed. Here what we're seeing, um, there's a, some, several plant, plant uh, impairments going on, but tap number nine, and uh, so the taps are labeled on the bottom. Tap number nine is elevated in this one here. Um, so uh, uh, <laughs> grab a sandwich. <laughs> <laughs> As he said, Gravisenridge has asked, uh, why is tap number nine? So typically if tap number nine and 10 are elevated, those often indicate in-home impairments because they're, um, well, there's a various reasons that gets into a really detailed. Well, let's, let's do, let's do the, the math also. You know, part of doing pre-EQ, I used to call it sort of frequency domain reflectometry, like looking yep. at standing waves and figuring out the distance of the cavity or distance the to cavity. the problem for the microreflection to go back and forth, right? So every tap in a 24-tap equalizer for a 6.4 megahertz watt channel, you can do the math and figure out each tap is worth like 80 feet, I think. For uh, a 6.4 megahertz upstream or 170 yeah, yeah. feet for a 3.2 megahertz upstream. Yes, yes, exactly. So so the bigger the channel and the more granular the taps, the more uh, granular the, the distance for each tap, right? And I know Ron did some of the math before. So that first tap might be equivalent of, say, 80 feet max. Correct. Well, that easily could be within the house. Correct. You and, know, and from that's your ground block to your modem. Or to the drop, from the drop to the ground block. Yes, and that, that's why we typically say tap number nine and tap number 10 are, are generally, and, and when I say generally, it's about 80 to 90% of the time, those are in-house problems. 
we we have to generalize that. And and the, the only reason we're saying generally in-house in-home problems is because they're small echo cavities. As John mentioned, it could be from the modem to the ground block or from the drop to the ground hop to the ground block because there's small echo cavity distance, 80 feet, uh, 170 feet. These are small echo cavities. Could but, be the, the, the connector and the modem itself, right? right. It's just loose. But it's still, it could be a small span of cable in the outside plant as well. If it, right. you know, it could be a small span between a line extender and a corroded um, mainline tap as well. So these aren't always, it's not an exact, um, you, you can't always look at it and say this is, uh, just that's because it's 85 grab, feet, it's going to be in the home. That's why you grab multiple modems to see if they have a signature that's the same as their neighbor. And we call that a correlation group. A cluster, right? Yeah. So if you see everyone has the same type of response or same type of signature, then you know it's got to be a common point that all the modems see. Right. So then you're like, all right, well, it can't be his drop line because my neighbor's not going to have the same drop line. So maybe it's further upstream and there's a, 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 a splice that someone put in and a tap that has water. Correct. And that distance of that cavity was exactly 80 feet. So they're all showing a same type of tap problem or signature. So depending on the PNM application you have, you, you may or may not have to do some more advanced analytics to say, you know, if, if this home has an 85-foot echo cavity and the, the next home and the next home and the next home, they all have 85-foot echo cavities, then these are part of a correlation group. Uh, like a bad technician. <laughs> exactly. exactly. <laughs> you did all the same installs the same way. <laughs> so... Now I was talking about OFDMA and how pre-equalization works in OFDMA when we have just 50 or uh, 50 kilohertz or 25 kilohertz subcarrier spacing. Um, in that case, we still have an ICFR chart that we'll get. Uh, we don't get the pre-EQ chart, the pre-EQ tap chart that we get. We don't get that. Um, we just get an ICFR chart. That ICFR chart covers the entire span of the OFDMA channel. Um, we get a lot, but we get a higher frequency resolution of it. We get much more detail because the subcarrier spacing is either 25 kilohertz or 50 kilohertz. So our resolution we get in our ICFR chart is much higher, much more detail. Well, resolution. think about this. If you have 24 tap equalizer for DOCSIS 2.0, DOCSIS 3.0, single carry qualm, in 10 megahertz with 50 kilohertz subcarrier spacing, that's 200 subcarriers. Correct. It's almost like you're saying you have a 200 tap equalizer. Yes. Like you have 200 sampling points. Like that many little fine granularity of in-channel frequency response. Yeah, I think Alberto Campos, and and he's kind of like the he's like the guy you know the 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 guy who figured all this stuff out. He <laughs> in, in as he stated to me is we we have forty times the resolution in an OFDMA channel compared to what we had in an SC QAM when we're talking about pre-equalization. So our our ability to like you know find correlation groups and and find impairments with OFDMA using pre-equalization is just going to be so much more or is so much more accurate. Now really we're we're really now just getting to the point where we're turning on pre-equalization and OFDMA and being able to start using this capability, um, but it is it is a lot more. You know, we're getting a lot more detail, and it's very exciting to be able to take. I'm wondering when he says forty times, if he's referencing twenty five kilohertz subcarrier spacing, and a six point four megahertz channel, like apples to apples. Like if I took a six point four single carrier qualm with twenty four, and a six point four with twenty five kilohertz, four times twenty four or forty times twenty four is is what a thousand or. Yeah, yeah, I think it's a good point. Compared to a three point two um, yeah. megahertz channel, you're you're going to have even higher resolution because I'm I'm sure. Either way, we got a lot more. Yeah. Either way, we have a lot more visibility. Yes. With the OFDMA, it just gets keep. It just keeps getting better. So, our next question comes from Ed, and he's asking. Um, he says, "Thank you all. I enjoyed every minute. Could you, in the future, talk about low MERs?" or low downstream SNR due to ingress from cell towers or 5G antennas affecting DOCSIS channels. We are getting hammered by single-digit MER levels close to towers, quad RG6 drops to modems. So I'm, I'm assuming he's installing quad RG6 drops. If you aren't familiar with quad RG6, that just means 
you're using an even you're, <laughs> a higher quality grade drop with um, multiple four wraps of shielding around it to try to prevent. So he's really trying to prevent this sig- these um, interfering interfering signals from getting in. So he's saying no RF leaks, but yet still it gets into the plant. Thank you. So he think you know he's thinking ah none of this is getting in, but still he's seeing these problems. So when we talk about 5G and LTE, um, low band 5G, and I'm talking about you know just where it operates, it operates in a 600 to 850 megahertz range. This is where it impacts us in the, uh, in the RF range, may operate in other spectrums. Um, LTE operates in North America in the 600, 700, 850, and 900 megahertz range. It operates in other frequencies as well, but these are the primary frequencies that impact us. Um, Then what I'm showing here on the graph or or on the uh, slide is uh, two different things. On the left-hand side is a full-band capture slide. So full-band capture, we use cable modems to capture all the signals going into subscribers' home. And I've circled in red right between some SC qualm channels on the left-hand side and an OFDM channel on the right-hand side. That circle in red, you can see there's um, likely some LTE or could be 5G, it's hard to tell, uh, interference coming up. So we can see that using full-band capture. And then on the right-hand side on the slide, I'm showing the uh, RxMER data of an OFDM channel. So this is where an operator is running OFDM, but that RxMER channel has just absolutely been clobbered by what looks like an LTE interference. So this is exactly what Ed is asking or is talking about. Um, you know, channels are being hammered by um, both 5G or LTE. Uh, in one case, the cable operator actually created an, an opening. They're not using the spectrum that's being impacted by either the 5G or LTE. In the other case, on the right-hand side, that OFDM, OFDM channel is just being clobbered by LTE, and that's going to cause the RxMER or RMER uh, to be degraded and likely impact that subscriber that's on that channel. So... Ed did everything he should be doing, John. Uh, at, at least he thinks he did. He's using quad shield cabling and stuff. But how in the heck are these signals getting in and impacting his subscribers? Well, th- think about uh, where your cell phone is. It's in your house, probably sitting right beside you. It's right here. You're probably putting it right beside <laughs> your cable modem. <laughs> so this is transmitting too, you know? Yep. Um, so it's not just receiving. So it might be you're getting that ingress from the phone itself and the CPE, the customer premise equipment. Um, the, that, that could be one of the cases. The other could be the, the ground block. Uh, regardless of how good the cable is, you still have to connect it somehow. Uh, so it's probably picking up off the ground block or a, a poor connection somewhere. Uh, you still have people that are doing disconnects at the tap by cutting cables. You shouldn't be cutting cables. Now you're creating ingress sources and everything That never else. happens. Yeah. Never, yeah. ever. Uh, you know, disconnecting the cable is the way to go. But, you know, if you disconnect the ground block, you just left a huge antenna from the tap to the ground block. Uh, so you shouldn't be doing that as well. Um, leaving open cables is not a good idea. But, you know, that one graph you showed – was a little disconcerting because it was such a wide amount of spectrum. It just seems like it's too much spectrum to be LTE. You know what I mean? That far right graph, it's taking out how much spectrum there, like 5 megahertz, 10 megahertz? I can't see your X axis. 730 to 740. It's 10 megahertz. Um, But I believe uh, LTE can take up, I think, up to 20 megahertz in bandwidth. Okay. All right. So that's only so maybe, 10. Maybe, yeah. yeah, maybe it is then. Um, so then the question is, one, you want to try to avoid it in the first place. Uh, but if it's going to be there, it's going to be there. How do you deal with it? So you can either avoid it altogether on your spectrum allocation, or you can do exclusion bands to exclude it in your OFDMA. Or you can say, all right, let me just ignore. And here's what I recommend right now is I ignore 10% of my subcarriers for my profile management decisions because we found with LT, LTPC, low density perijack, uh, time and frequency interleaving, that the downstream OFDM is pretty darn robust. So even if the LTE gets in, you're kind of sharing the brunt of that problem across all the channels. 
because of how it does the fast forward transform and it's very complex signal. Um, and you can say, well, I just want to avoid it. But if you exclude it, you excluded valuable throughput for everybody. Right. And maybe only my neighbor has a problem. So why am I getting punished? Because my neighbor has a problem. So the other idea is I could do a profile. We talked about IUC for upstream, but profiles for downstream. You could do a, a 1K or a 2K profile that's 2K profile across the board. And another one's a 2K profile with just 64 qualm and that one little bit of spectrum. So the only people that use that profile are the people that need it. That makes sense? Yep. Yeah, is it your your you're like it's a step profile? Are you talking about that or yeah. you just yes? So yeah. and uh, that, you could say everyone else can use everyone has good MER across the board. We use 4K or 2K or 1K qualm. Yes, I can make another 2K qualm across the board, except for that little bit of spectrum where I know I have LTE interference. Correct. And then it, when MER comes back, because we don't just look at an average MER, we look at MER of every subcarrier. Correct. So if we have MERs that are bad in that one little sliver, and I have a profile already made that will fit that scenario, the modem would get that profile. Yes. And then, and then another option that we have is um, the profile management application, um, which is a, a tool developed by Cable Labs. But we, you know, so so vendors like Nimble This, we've taken that tool, we've integrated it in, so we continuously pull modems, and we look at, as you said, we look at all of that RxMER data from every modem, and if we see something like we saw on that OFDMA slide or that OFDM slide, we can also do the same for OFDMA, where you have that 10 megahertz band that was impacted. We can call. We can create an exception, um, or an exception rule for just that modem. So let's say there's, you know, uh, uh, or or a group of modems where that frequency, just just those frequency where that noise was leaking in. Uh, so you could run 4096 qualm everywhere, and and just in that frequency area, we can drop down to a lower modulation, and we can set that for blocks of modems or even a single modem. And that gives us the ability to allow modems that don't see that impairment to continuously run at 4096 qualm and modems that see that impairment to run at 4096 qualm, except in that frequency area where they have the impairment, drop down to a lower modulation, say 256 qualm, and then drop, then jump back up to 4096 qualm once that impairment has gone away. So... Like John, you were saying, so so there's exclusion bands where we just totally turn off the subcarriers, and as John, you mentioned that that kind of like that just takes away capacity. But then we have exception bands where we don't we leave the subcarriers on where the noise is, but we just drop the profile just in those frequency bands to a lower profile. So I think those are like two different options that we can use. The ex exception bands we have to have PMA, the profile management application, running. Yep. The other thing is, is I, you know, we were like, how does this noise get in? So quad shield cable, I think that's like 110 or 120 dB of isolation. But if, if your connector on the end of that quad shield cable is not connectorized well, that quad shield cable doesn't have 120 dB of isolation anymore. Well, it could have you call it isolation or just shielding. Yeah, shielding, isolation. I think shielding is probably a better term. Okay, shield. Isolation to me, I think about is like port to port isolation, isolation. on a splitter, yeah. you know. I think it, when you just talk about blocking signal, it's more like shielding, right? Right. So we'll call it shielding then. So I think it's, you know, it's you can have really good quality cable. If you don't have a good connector, if that connector was not properly put on, then it doesn't matter how good the cable is. Same in the outside plant. You can have hardline cable in the outside plant, but if the connector on that hardline cable is not well connectorized, that hardline cable could be the leak of your 5G or LT ingress. You could have a radial crack on that hardline cable, and that could be where the signal's leaking in. So there's many places that this all could be getting in. So we got a question from, uh, I do like that. Uh, so, so I'm going to, uh, before I say his name again, I'm going to hit Jeremiah's. Uh, Jeremiah says, most MSOs don't disconnect for self-installs. Um, yeah, I would, I would agree with you there. Um, and then, Grab a sandwich. Uh, almost every <laughs> just like that name. <laughs> almost every tap I see on a daily basis has an open spigot, uh, which means it's not terminated. And we do recommend terminating all ports on a tap, especially low value 
taps. Those are the ones that have leak more than others. Some still have rubber caps. So I think what you mean by the rubber caps is when you when you buy uh, taps and they come from the vendor, they all come with a little plastic. little yeah. plastic caps on them. Yeah. <laughs> to, yeah. Those are just protecting the threads. Yeah. Those are not going to keep RF out. Um, so uh, we're so, told now. And let, and let me let me reiterate on that too. It's like a tap spigot by its design doesn't leak like a sieve, doesn't suck in RF. The problem with the low value taps is. When you look at a tap construction, the lower the value tap, the less isolation there is from the tap spigot to the output port. Yes. So when I get a four-port 11 dB tap, it's really just a splitter in there splitting my output to my my, my spigots. It's that so simple. That yeah. port isolation might be 18, 20 dB, whatever. So if the signal goes up the tap to the head end, it's going to backfeed. Yep. And if it backfeeds down to a 4 dB two-port tap that's unterminated – Guess what? It's going to reflect. Mm-hmm. And when it reflects in and out of that tap, it's only losing a total of 8 dB because it went through the tap twice, yeah. right? 4 dB, 4 dB. The higher value taps for signal to go to a spigot and reflect and come back out, a, a 23 dB tap is going to be 46 dB down. So really, you can make an argument it's not really worth terminating high value taps. Yes. But if to make it logistically easy, you just say terminate everything. Some people would argue it's like, but if I put a terminator, 75 ohm resistor up inside that spigot and it breaks, it's worse than if I had nothing on there at all. And that could be true. So one, make sure you do it correctly. Two, you make sure it has a grommet or some type of, you know, not hermetically, it could be hermetically sealed, but something that's not going to open it up and pull suck water into it. Yes. All right. Grab a sandwich. Um, (laughs) So... He says, I heard maintenance techs use or used to have a sniffer that they would drive around with to find leaks. RF is so interesting and different than DSL twisted pairs. So, yes. Um, so we call this leakage, RF leakage equipment. Um, and there's uh, there's a number of companies out there that make this RF leakage equipment. And I highly recommend everyone, every cable operator have leakage equipment in their vehicles um, driving around because, um, one, yes, if, if your plant is leaking signals, um, that's bad. <laughs> it can interfere with other, uh, other, other companies and other equipment out there. But if your plant is leaking signals out, it can also have signals leaking in like LTE and 5G. So as you're driving around and you're catching those leaks, you're finding things like unterminations, cracks in cables, probably you know, loose connectors and things like that that gives you the opportunity to repair those. So leakage equipment is extremely helpful in your plant maintenance, and it also helps you um, prevent your signals from leaking out and interfering with other services. So great thing to do and highly, highly recommended. Hey, big news, Argentina is up at halftime, 1-0. <laughs> Just thought everyone to know. <laughs> They're probably watching that besides listening to you yes. and me. <laughs> well, that's, that's more important, I'm sure, to many people. <laughs> All right, John, I think we got to the end of our final question. We are at the top of the hour. So thank you, John. Thanks, everyone, for watching. And we got one more question. They found a loose connector on the node and a quarter turn. You know, that's another thing. Loose connectors. They are so underappreciated. Make sure those connectors are tight because they do as Tech Junkie 28, another name I like. They they cause all kinds of issues. They let leaks out. They let water into coax. We know that water in coax is a terrible thing. High frequencies do not like water. So keep those connectors tight. They make your plant much better. So. Hey, and while we're at it, uh, I think we're going to bring in Jason Miller next month maybe to talk about the OUDP and how do we do leakage testing when we go to a 204 megahertz upstream. Yes, Normally, leakage was always done about 133 megahertz downstream broadcast from the head end out. So it's easy to go around and sniff and listen for signal leakage. But now that the upstream could go to 204, how are you going to do a 133 megahertz? You can't do it on the downstream. You got to do it on the upstream. But the upstream is all these different endpoints coming together. So where are you going to put the source? But if we have a lot of 3-1 modems, we make the 3-1 modems the source. 
So I think that'll so be a really that, that. So I'm so glad glad you brought that up. That ties right into our January episode, OUDP leakage. Um, I think Mia will put that in the chat if she has. Uh, okay, well, okay, she's saying it's not tied in, not locked down yet. But <laughs> <laughs> um, we will. Uh, that will be coming in January, and it's uh, it'll it'll be a, a I think a very intriguing episode. So everyone tune in then for OUDP leakage coming soon. Um, John, great episode. Thank you for your time. Thanks everyone in the chat. Uh, appreciate all the good questions and comments. We will be back in January. Everyone have a great holiday season and thanks for watching. Stay tuned. Coming soon. Take care. All. Happy holidays. Happy holidays. See you later. <laughs>